0: And welcome each of you that are here in person. We are gr- it's just great to see you. Glad to have you. And uh, we're now getting into that part of the year where things, well, I would say slow down, but that's just not true, is it? It doesn't really slow down uh, anymore in Vero. Used to be years ago, you know, you, you, when we first moved here like 15 years ago, it felt like things slowed down just a little bit in Vero, but not so sure about that anymore. Uh, why don't we begin with prayer and then we'll get right into the, into the word. We've been studying 1 Samuel, the study of the kings, learning great life lessons from Saul, from David, and when you use those names, obviously we're telling you that not every lesson that we're learning is because they did it right. (laughs) Uh, We're learning from their mistakes as well, and that's what God would want us to do. It's interesting, the Bible does not hide the ugly stories. It doesn't take away the difficulties. And... It forces us to dig deeper in the Word, to understand those difficulties. And also, uh, it reveals to us that these people that we're reading about, these men, of, men, and, men and women of God, uh, are just like us. They, they, they struggled with sin. It was real to them. And yet God, in His wonderful grace, imagine that. God, A God of grace in the Old Testament. Or you hear people say, oh, no, I like the God of the New Testament better than the Old. What are you talking about? It's the same God, Old and New Testament. His character never changes. Within Him, there's no shadow of turning. There is no variance. And so tonight, we'll continue in our study. We'll be in chapter 23, verse 1, but let's begin with prayer. Lord, tonight, I want to thank you for this rich time of fellowship and Bible study. We know that, Lord, worship, oftentimes, especially in North America, is connected to singing. But worship is not just singing. In fact, worship, quite honestly, isn't singing. Worship is focusing our adoration on God. And that can happen when we sit alone in silence from our vehicle in the middle of the day. The Bible says, for my soul awaits in silence for my hope is in him. It can mean studying the Bible. It can mean singing songs. Worship takes on so many different uh, manifestations in our life and all of it is focused on God. So tonight, Father, you are the centerpiece. You are the focus of our lives. We're studying the word that we might grow in in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. We're we're studying so that we can live a life in such a way that uh, it will bring glory to your name. Living life in such a way that, Lord, uh, uh, your name would be great in our sphere of influence. That people who know us would think of God when they see us. Not because we're God, but because we, we have His reflection the reflection of his glory in us and we're thankful that you love this and forgave us that you have called us out of darkness into your light we are thankful that our sins are forgiven and it's as if we never sin now the scripture teaches us and and we're just thankful that you don't see us as sinners but as saints righteous through the work of Jesus Christ not our own works in Jesus name so tonight Lord Let this study be profitable in our personal lives, but Lord, beyond that, not only do a work in us, but Lord, do a work through us in the lives of others as we share the truth of your word with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Just by way of setting this up, uh, as you remember, uh, David has had a pretty rough go lately. Saul announced that he wants David dead. He wants to kill David. So David's been on the run. It was Jonathan, the son of Saul, who made a covenant with David and promised that David would be the next king. Now think about that. The one who's supposed to inherit the throne, the son of Saul, God revealed, you're not the guy. David is, and rather than become jealous and envious, rather than try to kill David to ensure that he takes the throne, he has such a heart for God, just like David, that he, they become dear friends. And uh, so David's been on the run, and uh, we pick up where now David gets word, it doesn't say who, it says now they told David, uh, but the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Now, why are they... Here's a question. And when I see that, here's the first question that came to my mind. Why are they telling David this? David's not the king. David's on the run. Yet they come to David. They should be going to King Saul. The only problem is, King Saul is focused on trying to kill David. King Saul is not being led of the Spirit of God. He's being led by his flesh and the fleshly desires that are driven by bitterness and anger and resentment and jealousy and envy. And so he's about Saul's work. David is simply trying to survive, and God is coming to David. He's sending people to David, who's not the king, and he's saying, David, I want you to do the king's work. Now, this is very interesting to me. The threshing floors were located in the lowlands of Judah. Uh, Keilah would have been just northwest of the city of Hebron. Uh, remember now, the Philistines are the perpetual enemies of Israel. And now they're robbing the food supply of the people of Keilah. The threshing floors are where they would thresh out the, the, the grain. And uh, it was the lowlands, they were flat lands, and they would, they, would, they would thresh out all the grain, the wheat and the rye and whatever. And uh, uh, Philistines would come in and they would, they would seize all the crop. And now they're even wiping out the threshing floors. And uh, Saul should be focused on that. He's not. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Uh, that, that's interesting to me. Uh, first of all, that God is actually in in discussion with David about the king's work. God sees David more as a king than he does the king. And secondly, what's very uh, encouraging to see here is when David hears about the problem, it says he inquires of the Lord. See, God loved his people too much to let them suffer under an unattended, unfaithful king. If Saul wasn't up to the task, God would raise up a man who was. So here we have David acting as the king, even though he's not yet the king. And notice, David doesn't assume the role of king. After these men come with this news that the threshing floors are being destroyed, the Philistines are attacking the men of Keilah, David doesn't just get up and run out and take care of it like it's his business. He seeks God first. He first asks the Lord if he should deal with the matter in Keilah. And the Lord responded and said, go. Go. Now, I know a pastor who used to say, to see the need is to hear the call. And on the surface, that sounds right. If you see a need, go meet the need. That's what he was saying. And in certain situations, that is right. But as a general rule, that's terrible advice. To see the need is to hear the call. Where is the time before the Lord to discern what God is saying? You know, it's possible for us to see a need and jump into it and actually get in the way of what God's doing. Someone who's struggling financially because of making terrible financial decisions. And we hear about the need and we race over to bail them out and take them out of that debt so they can... And God's like, "Uh, no! I want them to suffer a little bit. They're learning to trust me with their finances. Don't you come in as if you're the Savior and fix it for them. They don't need to be fixed. They need to suffer a little while so I can teach them, and then they'll know different next time. Does that make sense? Yeah. But isn't that our human nature to try to help people, and which is a good thing? But the, the point is we, we don't seek the Lord first. We don't sense what God's doing in the moment. Another typical example would be in a church service where they have an altar response and somebody responds, they come to the altar and they're just weeping and wailing at the altar and, and several people who have great hearts of compassion and care, they jump up quickly and run up and put their arms around them. Oh, it's okay, it's okay, oh, oh. Um, how do you know the person's not dealing with the Lord over sin? They're, re- they're in a process of repenting over sin. The last thing they need to hear is, it's okay. When you're in sin and God reveals that to you, the Bible says that, that what comes from that is godly sorrow. When you see somebody who's weeping over their sins, that's not a bad thing. Don't try to bail them out. Let them have that time to do business with God. God. To see their sin the way the Lord sees the sin. He's ministering to them, He's helping them. The worst thing we can do is run over and try to minister. So, what should we do? Give them a few minutes first. Let them have that time. Pray in the process Lord, are you wanting me to go up and to minister to them? And when you have a sense of peace in your heart that it's time to do it, then do it. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. You can have the right response in the wrong time, and it's a terrible outcome. Or you can have the right time and the right response, and God uses it beautifully in their life. And so here's David. He's not jumping to a conclusion. Oh, there's a need. Let's go. Let's go. Let's take. No, David's, Lord, what, what do you think? Are you wanting me to get involved in this? He's not assuming, even though he's already been anointed as the, to be the next king. But he's not assuming that role. David is such a humble vessel, wanting to be used of God, only wanting to do what the Lord raises up and leads him to do, not what he desires. That's why he has a heart after God. A heart after God says, I don't care about making a name for myself. I'm not interested in my reputation. I'm interested in being a bottom-level rower for God in a trireme ship. That's all that matters to me. Pull my oar well for the Lord. Whatever he has me do, I'll do it. If he doesn't call me to it, I'm not going to do it. Jesus practiced then. Practiced this. John 10, 19, I, I never do anything of my own initiative, but only what I see my Father do. We're talking the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in, who's incarnate in flesh yet fully God, and He is still on earth, never initiating anything apart from His Father. So what would give us this grand idea that we can come to God after we get involved? Lord, I need you to help me here. As if the Lord didn't know there was a real problem, or as if God had missed it somehow and you caught it, and so Lord, now if you'll come over here and join me in this, we can knock this thing out. God doesn't need our help. God's not interested in that. He just needs us to follow Him. Does that make sense? I'm just telling you right now, life's a lot easier when we follow than when we lead. God doesn't need your leadership. In fact, He, he chose David for that very reason. David's the perfect ex- poster child for that. David was not a great person. There's nothing great about David in the sense of, Performing miracles. He never performed a miracle his whole, his whole uh, life. Never did. He wasn't a great man. He was a shepherd boy. God chose him because he was nothing. But this, this, this ordinary boy believed in an extraordinary God. And he did what that extraordinary God told him to do. And that's why he was known as great. Had nothing to do with David, had everything to do with obedience to God. We would learn well from that, wouldn't we? Amen. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we get out of our head and we, well, maybe we're in the wrong head, you know, we're just trying to fleshly think everything through. And and, uh, I've seen so many pastors wreck in life because they got out ahead of the Lord. Well, I'm just doing the Lord's work. Uh, No, don't call fulfilling your fleshly desires the Lord's work. A lot of pastors minister to people to be seen. A lot of pastors minister to people in order to get kudos. They need the praises of people. They come to church walking in, and Sister Jones over here is telling Sister Smith, oh, our pastor's so wonderful. Last Saturday, my car was broken down, and I called my pastor, and my pastor came out, He lifted that hood, and he worked for three and a half hours on my car, and he fixed my car, and that pastor's walking in, and he's hearing that, and his chest is puffing out, and he's going, oh, no, 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 don't, no, no, don't, 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 no, no. no." No, he's feeding on it. That's not the Lord's work. The Lord's work is doing it because God's called you to do it, regardless of the outcome. And that's for all of us. It's not just for pastors. That's for all of us to hear. Because we're all called into the ministry. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And just like pastors, saints can also get caught up in flesh. And we go overboard. Stop saying, I'm just doing the Lord's work. Really? Really? So the Lord's work is to neglect time with your family so you can be the answer for everybody else's problem? I'm telling you, I've seen shipwrecks by pastors who lost their families because they never had time for the family. They were too busy doing the Lord's work. That's not the Lord's work. You have enough time every day to do God's will. And God's will includes being a husband to your wife, a father to your children, a son to your father in heaven, a pastor to a church, or a businessman or woman, you have just enough time to do God's will every day. You don't have to neglect the things that God has given you to be first and foremost uh, the first priority of your life, your family, to, to, to neglect them to take care of the church. That is not the Lord's work. Uh, that's the work of the flesh. Again, to be seen, to be praised, to be people's Savior. That, that stuff is nothing but a stench in the nostrils of God. We think it's so sweet, man, we just love hearing it, but it's not, it's not sweet to God. It really isn't. A true servant of Christ only does what the Father wills without a care of how it impacts his status or his reputation. He just pulls the oar. How do you know the difference between the Lord's work and the work of the flesh? You might want to write some of these down. If no one ever knew you did it, would you still do it? That'll determine real quick whether it's the Lord's work. If nobody ever sees you doing what it is, thing it is you're doing, are you okay with that? That's probably a pretty good indicator that the Lord could be in it. I'm not saying every time, but it's a pretty good indicator. When you finished helping them, did it cost you to the point of personal sacrifice? That's a good sign that it might be the Lord's work. It's amazing how we do things in order to get something in return. But the Lord's work isn't about you getting the return. God does give you a wonderful return on your investment of service to Him. But it might not manifest in the ways that you're thinking. You shouldn't focus on that part of it. Did you get offended when you finished that work and they didn't say thank you? They didn't appreciate you the way you thought they should have. I can promise you that's not the Lord's work. If you get offended when people don't give you kudos for what you've done, that's a fleshly work. That's connected to your pride, not to the Lord. Did it cause you to neglect others, the things that God has willed you to do, like time with your wife and kids? The, 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 the New Testament addresses this matter. It's really interesting how it comes up. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, and it's where the Apostle Paul, here's what he said, An unmarried man, so a single man or woman, is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man or woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. Now let me qualify what he's saying there. In this sense, when he says the cares of the world, he's not thinking of wicked cares. He's actually talking about things that he has ordained for you to do in this world that require time and energy, like, and Paul goes into it, listen, how he can please his wife, and if he has to please his wife and do the Lord's work, his interests are divided. All Paul is saying is, when you're married, you can't just do the Lord's work. You must give time to the affairs of your family. It's going to cause you as a married person... Not to be able, Here, if you're single, this is good. If you're single, Paul's saying, you've got more time to give to the work of the Lord than a married person does. In our church, our single adults, they should be carrying ministry. Because they have the time, they don't have the, the competing factors. Those of us who are married, Paul's saying, don't neglect your family to do the Lord's work. You did that when you were single. Now you're committed to marriage, so you've got a responsibility. Make sure you don't neglect your responsibility. Some of you are saying, yeah, but doesn't the Spirit and the Scripture say we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? Yes. And three verses later, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, bear your own burden. The first burden he talks about there in the text bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, that is, that word burden speaks of an overwhelming burden that someone is hit with. It speaks of a catastrophe, and it needs an emergency response. He says when people are in that situation, where they are in something that's way more than they can bear bear their burden with them, and fulfill the law of Christ. It's the Good Samaritan story, where the Good Samaritan saw a man who was robbed and beaten nearly to death, laying in the ditch. And he left his donkey and went down to the ditch, and he ministered to the man. He picked him up. He, he, he put salve on his wounds. He put him on the donkey, and he took him to someone Who knows what that Samaritan, what business he was missing. Maybe he had an appointment with someone that was important. But this is where we bear one another's burdens. In that story, we all know this. The good Samaritan was more Christian than the priest and the Levite, who only wanted to protect their titles, their reputations, and their ministry at the temple. They wanted to be seen. And to touch that man would make him unclean, and they wouldn't be able to minister at the temple. You and I are called by Christ. There are times where somebody's in need, and yes, you are trying to do something. There's been times in my ministry where uh, we had planned a family outing on a Saturday, and I get a call Saturday morning. And it's it's an emergency. It's a catastrophe. And I need to respond. And to say to my wife and children, hey, listen, I, daddy's got to go. This is very important. But being with you is not less important. And we're going to do it. We're going to save it and do it. And give them let them know when. Commit to do it. And make sure you come back and you spend that time with them. My kids knew they could always call the church and talk to me when they needed to. Unless I'm in a emergency situation they knew that if dad doesn't pick up the phone he's dealing with something that's that's very abrupt very important and he's got to deal with it so see there's a way to bear one another's burdens it's when they can't bear it by themselves they need your help then the the burden we're supposed to bear ourselves that he speaks of just three verses later that burden it says you know basically what the scripture says uh is you should carry, uh, for each will have to bear his own burden. That's what the the text says. Uh, It's speaking of a burden that is like, in the Greek, a soldier's backpack. The backpack he is able to bear. The backpack is made for him to bear it. No soldier is supposed to take his backpack, take it off, oh, this is just too much. Hey, could you carry this for me? No soldier would be worthy to fight if he couldn't bear his own backpack. That's why soldiers who are in training train with the backpack on. You're not supposed to get help with the backpack. And when people come over and you start throwing your backpack on others, trying to get people to help you with a backpack, what you're doing is, number one, you're trusting people, not God. Because God said you should bear your own backpack. And if it's a backpack-level burden then God obviously has a plan to use it in your life to teach you some things and to teach you to grow your faith, to strengthen your maturity in the Lord. And so we shouldn't try to take somebody else's backpack. And there's times where somebody's come to me, oh, pastor, I, I, today, I, I just need you right now today. This is going on and I, I, our marriage is falling apart and, and I've got to meet with you today. And I'll say back to them, did the problem in your, be honest with me, Did the problem in your marriage start today? Well, no. It's been there a long time. Okay, then it's not an emergency in the moment, but it is important. And I will meet with you, but I can't meet with you right this minute. And so I avert being sucked into somebody wanting me to carry their backpack. If you're in a marriage problem, there's a part of that you need to bear yourself right and there's a part your spouse needs to bear and there's no pastor or Christian counselor that can wave a magic wand and make that marriage work by meeting with you it's gonna take time to turn that marriage around guess what you gotta carry a backpack for a while does that make sense this is important for us you say why are you sharing this stuff Because you're called to minister. And this is teaching us how to minister to people. We're learning from the life of David a very positive lesson here. David didn't just pick up and run because there was a need. David sought the Lord first. He wanted to know if the Lord was in it. And the Lord revealed, yes, I'm in it. Do it. So he, he would take on only what the Lord gave him. We would do well to practice the same routine. Seek God first unless it's a catastrophe situation. Then get on it. Don't wait. Verse 3, But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more, then, if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So now, uh, let's get the picture. David's already asked the Lord if he should pursue uh, the Philistines, and God said, Yes, pursue them. Now, David's men come to him, and out of fear, because they're being chased by Saul and his army, Now they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. We're already being chased by Saul. And if we go to Keilah, we're exposing ourselves to be found. And we're going to be in double trouble. So David doesn't knee-jerk and berate his men. Oh, ye of little faith, what's wrong with your faith? Trust God. Come on, suck it up. Let's go. No, he doesn't do that. He listens to them. And he hears what they're saying. Another great lesson for us. Just because we think we have the right answer, or in this case, even when we know that God's in what we're doing and we're supposed to do it, that doesn't mean you don't listen and listen to what they're saying. And after you listen, you do what David did. Look what it says in verse 4. After listening to his men then david inquired of the lord again and the lord answered him arise go down to keilah for i will give the philistines into your hands couple things there david didn't berate his men and look at this is god look like he's when he responds is god upset with david that he came back a second time no he's not god probably is looking at the wisdom and the leadership of david that he didn't just go with it but he listened to his men first and then he came back to the lord Ultimately, it's God's decision, not the men. But I'm going to listen to my men. Now, let me tell you something. That's spiritual headship. That's, I believe, what God wants from every man who has a family. Every man who is married. You are called by God to be the spiritual head of your family. I'm not talking about authority to rule and to, you know, press down your family. I'm talking about servant leadership, knowing that one day you, not the wife, will give account to God for how you handled headship in the home. A good spiritual man will always listen to his wife and his children. He will never shut them out. He just doesn't do that. Even if he's prayed and he has a absolute confidence that God is in what they're about to do. But his wife comes back, honey, but, but let's consider this. He's wise to listen. Now, he's unwise to listen to what she says and then abandon what God said and go do what she wants. He's wise to listen and take what she said to the Lord. Because it's possible that God was testing him and he was actually saying through the wife something he needed to hear. So headship doesn't mean rulership, where you kind of just make the shots, you call everything out, and you do what you want, and everybody in the family serves you. No, no, it means servanthood. It means accountability. God's not going to hold your wife or your kids accountable for how that house was led. He will only look to the man in that situation. And that really lays a heavy on me uh, in my, my burden for others because... Today's society is so whacked out, so inside out, upside down, we have gone from inversion to perversion. Inversion would be where now a woman would say, I don't need a man in our house, I'll raise my kids by myself. Totally ignoring and rebelling against the role that God has given the woman and the role that God has given the man. There are things that that woman provides to that child that the man cannot provide. He's not wired to provide it. He doesn't know how to provide it. There's things that the woman, or that the man does, the woman cannot do. A boy needs a man in his life. Sometimes he needs a firm word from that man. A woman can't do that. And so now we have perversion because now... It's not just a woman who says, I can do it all myself. Now it's, I'm not even a woman anymore. I don't need to be anything. I'm gender neutral. And I can raise my kids just fine. Are you kidding me? That is a depraved mind producing wickedness to do that. And so from these lessons out of David's life, we're learning about how to live here now in our lifetime. So important that we see this. Um, So David sought the Lord, and the Lord said, go. And David and his men, verse 5, went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Here's David who's on the run. (laughs) And yet, because God said, do it, David said, I'll do it. Even if I know that fear is gripping my men, I'm going to tell them that we prayed, we sought the Lord, God said, do it. And the men, guess what? They went with him because they knew that they were heard and they knew that David sought God. And when God said, do it, they said, okay, let's go. There was buy-in. And verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, uh, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, what is an ephod? An ephod was the vest that the priest would wear, the high priest. Uh, and attached to it were 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It also contained the Urim and the Thuman, uh, which were used in the Old Testament by the priest to determine God's will. In the Old Testament, God allowed some pretty weird ways for a man to determine his will. So if you said, well, is the Lord telling us to go to battle or not? The priest would pull out of the ephod, he'd pull out a stone. One of the two is, this is just simply what they suggest happened. He would pull out a stone, and if it was a white stone, it meant, yes, go. And if he pulled out a black stone, no, don't go. And that's, listen now, that's how God spoke. It wasn't It was googly gosh, it wasn't weird, it wasn't superstitious. This is how they heard from the Lord in that day, okay? And and again, in the Old Testament times, priests would inquire the Lord using the Urim and the Thumen, which means light and perfections. And just what these Urim and Thumen were, we don't really know, but I do hear a lot that it's, it's stones. I can tell you what it's not for sure, though. It's not uh, some magical colored glasses that Joseph Smith found with golden tablets. Uh, magic glasses that when you put them on, you could suddenly read the hieroglyphic writing. Hier- hieroglyphic writing. Uh, that's what he said, you know. No, that's not, that's not God. Uh, there are those who say that these were actually uh, used by the priest to determine uh, God's will, and I believe it's true. I, scripture shows that it's true. Uh, but it, thank God we didn't continue with the Uman and Thurman, or, or Uman and Thup, whatever it is. The Urim and the Thumen, sorry. Hey, you try to say that five times quick and see where, where it lands you. Uh, What's interesting is, as we move out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, under the law, they still would use different methods to get God's will. Remember when the disciples, Judas had now taken his life, he was no longer a disciple, they had to replace him. And so what they do? They cast lots to determine who the next disciple should be, Matthias. Okay? That's in Acts 1.25-26. through 26. And, of course, that happened before the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. okay, Um, That's where the cast lots to choose Matthias came from. After the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit showed up, Jesus said he would. I'm going to leave and he will come. I won't leave you as orphans. Uh, Now, if you go to Acts chapter, I think it's like 13, you come to uh, the church leaders in Antioch, who are praying. They're not casting lots. They're not pulling out the Urim and the Thuman. They actually pray. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the ministry to which I'm calling them. So now for the first time, and this is the way it is now in the church, we seek the Lord for answers and the Spirit that dwells in us. God gives us that sense of peace that sense of calm, that sense of direction, that sense of contentment over decisions that we're making. We no longer need some kind of a physical... I, I, I do know a man, he's a friend of mine, and uh, he's a good man. He's a, one of the best elders I've ever worked with, and he was part of our church in Palm Beach Gardens. And he was raised in the Methodist Church, I believe, and he was taught, don't ever darken the door of a church of God. Now, uh, in many places throughout the Southeast, when you say Church of God, you're speaking of a very Pentecostal church, very uh, expressive people, very loud, expressive in the service. And his mother, I think it was his mother or his grandmother, kept saying, no, don't ever go in one of those churches. People are crazy in there. They're hanging from chandeliers, they're jumping pew chairs. Don't go in those places. So... So, so he, so he, so he, uh, he told me years later after he became part of our church. It was a church of God, but it wasn't a Pentecostal church of God. Uh, he told me. He said, "Here's how I came to this church." He goes, "I'm embarrassed to tell you." He said, "But I was worshiping at the Methodist church, and I'd passed by." church in the gardens, every Sunday, and I would pray, oh, God, help them. Just bless them, but help them, Lord. Help them. Show them the error of their ways, you know? And he wouldn't go in. He said, finally, I was so intrigued, I wanted to go in. He said, so I took a quarter. <laughs> and Lord, if it's heads, I'll go in, and if it's tails, I won't. And he flipped it, and it was heads. And he, then he said, oh, I can't be right. <laughs> he said, so, Lord... I'm going to flip it five times. If five times in a row it's heads, I'm going in. And if it's tails, I'm not. He flipped it five times and it was heads. <laughs> he said That's, that gave me the confidence to go into the church. Now, I, I'm not going to tell you that was the Lord. But I'm not going to say that it's beyond the Lord either, right? God can do whatever God chooses to do. But we're not to rely on those types of methods. We're to rely on the Holy Spirit. That's the point here. Okay, that's the point. Uh, uh, James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. There's your promise. If you ask God for wisdom, he will give you wisdom. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So when you ask for wisdom of the Lord, God will respond to you. Sometimes God, He responds by His Word. He turns you to a passage, and the passage has the answer. Sometimes it's through another godly believer. Or maybe it's two or three that confirm, even without you asking. They say, Boy, you know, I've always felt that this is the type of ministry that you... And you're like, what? Did somebody tell you that I'm praying about that right? See, there's ways that God can speak to us today. We don't need to turn to a dice, you know, roll the dice. We don't need to flip the quarters, any of that kind of stuff. Now, verse 7, it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So because David's in a walled city fighting for the Lord against the Philistines, Saul gets word and assumes that God has given him into his hand. Saul wouldn't know the voice or the word of God if it came up and bit him. He has no clue what God's doing. Yet he knows the lingo. Yeah, the Lord's handed him over to me. That would be the largest oversight in the solar system, to think that you could live the way Saul's living and chase down God's anointed and then turn around and think God's given him over to you to kill him when God's already told you and everybody else he's going to be the next king. So here's what what we take from that. We can become so blinded by our own evil and wickedness and depravity that we can't even think right. We can't think straight. This whole thing with, you know, the presidency, this last election, and Christians who even throughout the four years that Trump was president, how can any Christian vote for him? I can't believe it. You're not a Christian if you... You know what it boiled down to for me? I don't... It's not about personality. I wasn't real thrilled with Trump's personality. That didn't do anything for me. It wasn't about anything except this. Which are the people running is going to stand for the rights of the unborn. Who truly wants life? Because how they vote on life, how they believe on life, is how they'll treat your personal property. If they don't respect life, they won't respect you. And they won't respect the things that God has blessed you with. You don't have to go anywhere else except right there. You can look at everybody sitting in Congress right now, and that's the only thing that really matters. Honestly. That's what it comes down to. How anybody can think that it's right to have anybody in any order of government, whether it be local or state or national, who doesn't respect life, that somehow God's going to bless that. Makes no sense to me. If I'm stepping on toes... Move your feet. Honestly, everything we do in life ought to be based upon the Word of God. I'm not looking for a president who's a close, intimate relationship with Jesus. I'd love that, but the reality is my experience has been that most politicians know how to lie really well. I'm looking for the one, when they vote, that tells you everything you need to know. When they write laws, that tells you what you need to know about them. And so here Saul's acting like he's the man of God and he's doing the Lord's work by taking David out and God's put David in his hands because now David's in a walled city. Saul has no clue what the Lord's doing. So Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. I guess the same God that 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 handed David over to Saul is telling David that Saul wants to kill him and how to get away. That doesn't make sense, does it? God can't be doing both. And so David said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Oh, what's that? What are we doing here? So what's David's response hearing that Saul's coming down after him? Let me inquire of the Lord. (laughs) Did you read anything in there when Saul got word that David was in that city? Did it say anything about Saul seeking God for what to do? No, he just automatically said, boy, the Lord's put him in my hands. Yeah. So this is really interesting to me. David seeks the Lord again. And then David said, verse 10, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into Saul's hand? He's asking God a question. What does the scripture say? If you ask for wisdom, God will do what? Will Saul come down, as your, as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Now, this is very interesting to me. These years where David's being chased by Saul, these ten years... These are not wasted years. These are some of the richest fields for growth that David will have his whole life. And much of that growth, listen, please hear me tonight, the growth that David experienced in these ten years came because tremendous setback, his own failure, his own disobedience, the betrayal that he experienced from those that he thought loved him, A king chasing him down like a dog, and that's what Saul said. And these were the years God chose to do the greatest work of growing David, maturing him. We need to hear that. It's not the easy times that we grow in the Lord, it's the tough times that reveals our true character and how much we love God. When you seek the Lord in times of difficulty, and you obey God in times of difficulty when it's not easy. When you want a way out and God says, I'm not giving you a way out, but I will be with you as we go through it. Only the mature will, will, will stay with the Lord. So here's David seeking the Lord for what to do in a very difficult situation. And the Lord confirmed David's suspicions that the men of the city would actually turn against David. And even though he only came to help protect the Philistines against the attack... Those men are not going to stay with you. So let's get the picture. David has risked his own life and the lives of his men to liberate the people of Keilah. Yet the men of Keilah were the very ones who were going to betray David to Saul. I wish I could tell you that this story in the Bible is an anomaly. I wish I could say to you that this is an outlier. It's not the typical situation. I wish I could tell you that no one will ever betray you, that the people you pour into and help will be friends for life. I'd love to say that to you, but that would be untrue. The reality is, church, it's often the people you care about the most who will let you down the greatest. It's just the truth. So what are you to do with that? You have to fight against the evil response. You have to fight against the fleshly knee-jerk reaction that you want to give and say, well, I'll never open myself to people again. That's what your flesh tells you to do. But let me give you several reasons why you should not do that. Let me give you several reasons why you should forgive those who turn on you, who betray you, those who are out to hurt you. Why you should continue to trust people going forward and not let that experience ruin the ministry that God's given you as a Christian. First is present satisfaction. Write that down. Present satisfaction. When you've been betrayed, don't have a cow over it. Don't say, listen, this is an utter disgrace. Not utter, (laughs) utter disgrace. I know. I'm having to work hard here to get this out. Don't milk it for what it is. Don't have a cow. Instead, have a steak. I want you to remember. Look at verse 5. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David and his men were constantly hungry. Why? Because the, the stocks were low all the time. They're on the run. They can't carry a lot with them. So here they are putting themselves at further risk to help the men of Keilah. They go down, they help the men of Keilah by fighting against the Philistines and the Lord gives them the cows, the steaks of the enemy. So they eat good. So here's the deal. When somebody betrays you, when somebody harms you, when somebody's out to get you, look for the steak in the moment. Don't be a cow. Look for the steak. What is God doing in you in the process? He's growing you. You're going to come out of this storm looking a whole lot different than when you went in. Amen? I think it's just so beautiful. Jesus told us whatever measure we give out will be given back to us in Luke 6:38. Haven't you found that to be true in your life? that you cannot outgive God? And when the giving hurts, when the giving comes at great sacrifice, Oftentimes that has the greatest value to you because the, the benefits flow back to you. It's wonderful. See, when I, when I share with someone else when it's not easy, when I start trusting people again, even though there's part of me that wants to close up and not trust, but when I do it, now I'm opening myself for the Lord to change me, to bless me, to grow me. If I just hold back, there is no growth. There is no change in me. Whatever I had, that's all I have. But when I put it out there, when I share with someone else, my own faith grows. When I pray for someone else, guess what happens? My prayers become more passionate. My prayers become real again. You ever gotten to a place in your prayer life where, man, I just don't feel... It's just a perfunctory duty. I don't feel like it's really accomplished. Maybe it's because you're not putting yourself out there far enough. You're not extending beyond your comfort zone, dealing with matters that are not easy to deal with, dealing with relationships that are not easy to deal with. And if you'll just get on with it and forgive them and reconcile with them, then all of a sudden passion comes back into your prayer life. Pray for them. It's amazing how that works. It's called the law of reciprocity. Give and it shall be given to you. The second reason why people, we should help people after a betrayal and, and keep ministering to people, just because somebody betrays us doesn't mean we stop ministering, is because of the eternal remuneration. Eternal remuneration. In Matthew 5, 11, and 12, listen to what Jesus said about those who speak against you, who wrongly accuse you, who falsely make accusations about you. And because you're trying to stand for truth, you're standing for Christ, you're lifting up the gospel. Listen to this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why did they persecute the prophets? Because the prophets said what was right, not what was wanted, not what people liked to hear. They didn't tickle the ears, they just told the truth. And the Bible says that for the prophets, there's a great reward in heaven for them because of that. And the same is true for you. In other words, if you're put down or betrayed or doing right, Jesus would say you're going to have a great reward someday. Just remember that. Remember the time when I was really at a low point because I was taking on a lot of hits and and people coming at me in the community because of a position that I held scripturally, which I, to this day, have never denied and I never will it's the truth of the word of God it's it stands forever right so how can I deny it but at the moment it weighed on me because it was a lot coming at me from different directions and I remember somebody on a phone call said how are you doing I oh you know I'm starting to go a little bit sour and they said dude you should be so pumped up and excited that you're suffering for the Lord there's a great reward for you for doing that. Isn't that wonderful that God's put you in a place of persecution? What a wonderful blessing in your life. <laughs> and it, it turned me. I'm like, yeah, you're right. What am I thinking? And it changed everything. I Thank God for that person to this day, them doing that to me. Uh, verse 13, let's get on. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country and the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. So David continues to run around and hide. Now he's moved over into the hill country of Ziph. Write this down, the word Ziph literally means, listen to this, refining place what a great place for david to go to a place where god can continue his work in the refining process a smelter would heat ore to the point that the ore becomes liquid think about that why because as in that in that type of heat all the dross all the imperfections that are in that ore they're out the heat is what purifies And you say, well, how long should they keep it in the heat? Until as you look at that that ore that's coming out as a liquid, it's so glassy that literally you can see your reflection in it. God puts us in these refining places where the heat is so great, and He's doing a work in us as we trust Him and lean upon Him, keep our eyes on Him, until finally in that heat, all of a sudden, people begin to see God in us. God's done a work. And it's not like it's one time that we're in the heat, right? I mean, the heat seems to come around a lot. There's always situations that the Lord allows to come up in our lives. Why? Because He's not finished yet. He's still working on us. And about the time you think you got something figured out, the Lord says, okay, what about this over here? Oh, man, you're right. And He goes to work in another area of your life. C.H. Spurgeon said that, the affliction, that affliction is the tuner of the harp and the sanctifier of the soul. I love that. Affliction. Affliction. That's why the scripture says, Many are the afflictions of who? Righteous. The righteous, not the wicked. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And then the next part, and the Lord. Delivers him out of them all. So God uses affliction to do a work in us. I love that. How did David write the Psalms that have such intimacy with the Lord, such passion, such wisdom, such an understanding of the Lord? Because he spent time in places like Ziph and Kela. That's how. He's been through the battle. He knows what the war looks like, smells like, feels like. He knows what it means to be betrayed. He knows what it means to be chased down like a dog. He knows what it is to fight battles and not have appreciation when you come home. How long does the process of affliction or refining go on? As long as it takes for God to shine in your life. Verse 14, and Saul sought Him every day, but God... It could have stopped right there. There's the sermon. Saul is seeking to kill him. How often? Every day. But God did not give him into his hand. How I love this phrase. That phrase appears throughout the Bible. Saul's after David, but God. And listen, church, the same thing's true for you. God is present when you're suffering. God is present when you're in a quandary. God is present in your indecision. He's there. Hold fast. Stay true. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep seeking Him. He will reveal what needs to be revealed when it needs to be revealed. He's with you. But God works in your life too. Not just in David's life. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horash. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in God. What I just said to you is now happening in David's life. He's been out running around. He's in Ziph. He's in a place of refinement. He is probably disillusioned. He's, he's probably a little bit dismayed. I don't have to guess at that, and I'm not taking too much of a leap to say it because the Psalms are filled with Psalms of David where he is in anguish and pain and depression and whatever else. And he's having one of those days, and God sends Jonathan to him, someone who has a heart after God as well. And Jonathan does what? He strengthens David's hand. He strengthens David's hand. Jonathan doesn't wring his hand of David, he strengthens it. Lots of people will worry with you, but those aren't the people you need in your life. I'm not talking about cut them off and not let them be a friend. I'm saying don't spend a lot of time with people like that, who just want to worry with you. That's not what Jonathan did. It says he strengthened David's hand. You need people who will strengthen your hand in God, who will say to you, "'Trust in the Lord.'" Put away that sorrow. Put away your fear because God's with you right now, David. The Lord will see you through this. I told you about my friend who was sitting in a 2J's restaurant in Palm Beach Gardens at the Lomans Plaza. He, was, uh, he worked for Channel 25, ABC affiliate down in West Palm. And he, he sold airtime. And, and uh, he, he was, something else was going on in his life with uh, a, a huge major decision that he had to make. And he was sitting at that 2J's restaurant. I think he said he had a, you know, a bowl of soup or something. And he's just got his spoon in his soup. And he's heavy hearted. And he's trying to seek the Lord, what to do. And he's torn about it because he knows that this is probably depending on if he says what he wants to say, it could probably end his job at Channel 25. He doesn't know what to do. And he said, I was sitting there just heavy hearted. And all of a sudden, someone walked by him from behind him, walked by him, and they leaned in while they walked. They never stopped. And they said, keep the faith and kept walking. He said, that bolstered my faith to do what I knew I needed to do. And God was in it. And the reaction of the station was good. Good. God worked it all out, but He was obedient. We need those people in our lives who can come along to us and and say, Keep the faith. Don't quit now. God is with you. And you say, Boy, I could really use that person. Be that person. You be that person and watch God send people like that to you. Amen? See, that's what encouragement means. To encourage, in, in courage means to put courage in someone. Look for ways to encourage. I'm not talking about some life coach, Tony Robbins self help guru thing that you say, it's inside, just let it out. No, no, no. I'm talking about using scripture turning the person to the Lord. Hey, don't you quit. The Lord is with you. You're not alone. The Lord is, you're not alone. God is with you right now. Let God comfort you. Let God encourage you. Let God strengthen you. Let God give you the wisdom you need to get through this. See, that's what we need. We need it. By the way, this is the last time that that Jonathan and David would see each other. And it's a time when they reaffirmed the covenant that they made with each other. Jonathan had committed, David, I will do whatever I can to see you on the throne. Because I believe God wants that. And Jonathan thought that he would sit next to David. Not as the king, but he would be there supporting David. David. And Jonathan, of course, didn't live. And as Scotty alluded to a few weeks ago in the teaching, and we'll, we'll get to here before too long, um, David never forgot that, that uh, affirmation and that covenant that Jonathan made with him. And David has an opportunity to repay it in a beautiful way, even after Jonathan's gone. Um, verse 17, And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. See, he's speaking words of encouragement here. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. My Saul, my father, also knows this. And, see, Saul might be chasing you down, like and t- saying that God's with him. He knows the truth. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained in Horash and Jonathan went home. Don't think that that's the first covenant. This is simply a recommitment of the covenant. And not that they—that's not a bad thing. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. Hey, I'm, I've never given up on the covenant we made. Sometimes it's good to go back to somebody and say that to them, you know? Hey, that covenant we made, it's still good, man. <laughs> say it to them. Let them know it. Uh, verse 19, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horash on the hill of Hakalah, uh, which is south of uh, Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hands. So now, not only did David receive the betrayal of the men of Keilah, now it's the men of Ziph who are going to turn him in. But remember what Ziph means. It's all about refinement. So God's going to use the men of Ziph to turn on David, and yet God's going to use that for David's sake, not for their sake, but for for David's sake, and Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord. Oh, good grief. For you have had compassion on me. Saul would have made a great president in America right now, wouldn't he? Just say whatever you think sounds good. Go make yet more, more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. <laughs> I love that. So Saul, he's already, David's already weaseled out so many times he can't kill him. Saul's thinking David's cunning. It's not that. God's with David. God's providing that for David. Verse 23, See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of the Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan, or Maon, uh, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. I love it. Saul's so close and yet so far. God put it so that they're on the different sides of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So let me tell you the picture, because you don't see the geography. You can't see it. But if we had a topography, you'd see that David now is in a place with a mountain, uh, a a ridge. There's these mountains, and he's in the corner. and uh, There's nothing but mountains. He can't go anywhere. And Saul's pressing in on him. So Saul's going, finally, I've got him. I'm going to send my men in and take care of this this business. Uh, And then look what it says. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. They're coming to the homeland. They're about to raid. Who do you think set that up? It wasn't David. David's just trying to obey God one step at a time. God's doing the work. God is going before David. Saul, get back home. The Philistines are mounting an attack on us. See, God has a way of moving in and protecting us, even, on, uh, even or even especially when there seems to be no way out. Verse, I bet everybody here can give a story when you thought there was no way out and God provided a way. Now, I hope you took the way out. Sometimes we're so foolish and stubborn that God provides the way and we don't take it. Verse 28 So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. And therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. I guess so, huh? Uh, Others call it the rock of protection. David had no place to go. He was hemmed in, surrounded by the enemy. But there was a rock of protection between him and Saul. Praise God. We too should remember that our rock, the rock of what? Ages. Jesus Christ has never let us down. He's never dropped the ball in your life. Ever. So many times I've thought, "I, I just can't see my way out of this one there's just no way out of this and the lord comes through. We should sing his praises every day all day long for the ways that he has provided for us. And somebody says, "Well, I'm not sure about that." Well, if you make it to he- if you're saved and you go to heaven, I'm going to tell you right now, God's probably going to play back your life the times he spared you when you would have died and didn't even know it. <laughs> the times he, he protected you. 2 Timothy 2:11 The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, listen, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. He's made the promise. You're part of the promise. Without ever striking a blow, without ever shooting an arrow, without ever hurling a spear... David was delivered from the hands of Saul's men. Sometimes when we try to make, take things in our own hands, we only make matters worse. God would say to you and I, let the rock be your protection. Watch and see what I'll do as you trust in me. In verse 29, and David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Engedi means the mount of the kid. What does that mean? I think you know. It's where the mountain goats were located. And they're still there today, they say. I wouldn't know. I've not been to that land. But uh, that the mountain goats are still prevalent right there in, in Gedi. And what is in Gedi? It's a beautiful spot in the desert area surrounding the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, yet around the Dead Sea, is an oasis in Gedi. And that's where God brought David so that he could have a time of what? refreshing. He needed a time of refreshing. He's been through a lot. He made it through the refiner's fire. Amen? Isn't it wonderful when you stay with the Lord and He brings you through, you're finally out of that situation, you can sigh relief and thank the Lord, and you have a heart filled with love and thankfulness, and all you want to do now is serve Him and love him back and until he brings another refiner's fire. <laughs> Why? He's never going to stop on you. He loves you too much to stop. A good daddy will never stop chast- chastening his children, right? He loves them too much to do that. You know, I'm, a, I'm still a dad of four kids. My kids are all married, and uh, three of the four have kids. And uh, so I can't chasten them like I used to. But there's ways... There's ways they, they know when you're with them and when you're saying, hmm, I'm not going to say anything. If you ask, I'll be glad to tell you. <laughs> but you've got to ask. That's, that's good. Why, why would I do that? Because I love them. I'll never stop loving them. I don't care what mistakes they've made. You know why I can, why I can be like that? Because all I've got to do is, takes that long to think about the stupid things I've done in my life. And how God never stopped loving me. When I was rebellious, He was merciful. When I was ugly, He was compassionate. When I was unforgivable in the eyes of others, He forgave me. And the Bible says when you've been shown a lot of mercy, it makes you want to show mercy to others. So, stay with the Lord. Trust Him every day. Stay in His Word. Start getting involved in the lives of the people around you. Care enough to speak words of encouragement to them and love them. Pray for them. Make sure that you practice in front of them, taking everything before the Lord and not just making a decision and giving a knee-jerk reaction. And when you fail... Ask the Lord to forgive you. He does. You're already forgiven. And now loving back. Keep loving Him. Father, thank You tonight that we could be in Your Word and that Your Word is life to us. Even out of the Old Testament, these wonderful illustrations out of David's life, out of Saul's life, we're learning. Hopefully we're changing. We're being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus as the Holy Spirit does His work in us. Lord, I'm just going to say it. Thank you for the times of trial. Thank you for the times of affliction. Thank you for the times of failure. It's a rich soil for bearing fruit, for growing and learning. May we all learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen.